Hey everyone, this episode of the Riding NFL DFS podcast is an absolutely spectacular one with Benjamin Robinson of GrindingTheMocks.com. We get into his aggregated mock draft data and we try to spot inefficiencies in betting lines uh, where we could take advantage and bet some props where his uh, model says uh, there is a big discrepancy in projected draft position and where the betting market says a player is going to go. One thing I do have to note, it, towards the end of the podcast, something happened with the audio during processing where it sounds like Ben is answering my question before I am finished. You know, So the last two or three seconds of my question, Ben begins to talk over me. He was not rude in any way and interrupted me <laughs> during the last part of the podcast. It does sound that way because the audio is not synced perfectly. So hopefully you can overlook that that tiny flaw and, and um, you know the first word or two of Ben's sentence and the last word or two of my sentence uh, mesh a little bit, but it shouldn't be too bad and you should be able to uh, you know pick up all the ideas and all the uh, you know all the information that we laid out here. Hopefully you enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Ride In NFL DFS podcast. I am joined today by Benjamin Robinson of GrindingTheMocks.com. I am going to turn the floor over to him to just explain to you a little bit about what he is doing over at Grinding. The mocks.com. Ben, welcome to the Ride in NFL DFS podcast. We are covering the NFL draft for the last month or so, just trying to nail down, um, you know, the betting angle based on the fact that this is, uh, you know, a DFS, a fantasy a betting podcast. And I thought having you on would be a great way to shed some light on uh, the mock draft industry. Uh, so if you just want to tell the listeners what exactly grinding the mocks is, where they can find it, what made you delve into this project. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, appreciate uh, you giving me the floor. So yeah, so grinding the mocks is a, it's kind of a philosophy that I, that I've come up with. And um, I know I'm not the first person to come up with this because teams have actually been using mock drafts to kind of game theory, how the draft might come together for years. Um, I think I'm just probably the first person at least to do a lot of public work on it, but grinding the mocks uh, the idea for this came when we, me and one of my, my best friends in college uh, were watching the 2018 NFL draft. Um, and um, we were on, on his couch at his apartment in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I went to college. And he's a Steelers fan, um, being from Pittsburgh. And I'm a Bengals fan, being from Cincinnati. And we were watching the draft. And like we always do, we're just kind of enjoying it, having a good time. But, um, you know, we're both like kind of critical thinkers, analytical guys. Maybe your listeners are, too. Um, and when we listened to the draft analysts who are, you know, on the television broadcast and they said, you know, X player, oh man, I think that's a bit of a reach or man, what of steal. And I kind of thought, well, you know, there's probably some conventional wisdom there that they're pulling from that it might be correct, but how do we actually know whether a player is selected above or below expectation? Cause that's how we define like a reach or how we define a steal. And so I thought, you know, mock drafts, would be a good place to start to look at how we can find kind of the signal and the noise of what's going on in the draft process, because the draft process, you know, as you go through it all, there's really, uh, you know, a good number of important 
um, kind of points in the process where we really think that information in the public market is changing because the draft is a marketplace. Um, and so, you know, how do we know what someone's draft stock is? How does that change over time? What affects it? Um, and so to me, I mean, as a student of economics, I was interested in this kind of uh, theory of the, the crowd. Um, how smart is the crowd? Um, we have a lot of research that goes and looks um, in social science about the, the kind of the power of the crowd. And so for the most part, a lot of research has confirmed that on average, the aggregation of, of many forecasts is usually more accurate than a single forecast alone. So, you know, I went from, hey, I'm going to pay attention to one person's mock draft who might have just a, a big platform to, hey, let's actually analyze this as data. Um, and let's look at it in a kind of a critical way uh, to kind of look at something that I think a lot of people view as sort of very opinionated um, and very um, subjective. And let's make it a little bit more objective with data. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> something that I always speak to on this podcast is wisdom of the crowds. And coming from a fantasy perspective, um, fantasypros.com is a website that much like your website aggregates the fantasy rankings of all the experts, whether it's, you know, pre-draft in August when you're, when you're doing your, your fantasy drafts to see when you should draft them or uh, in season, when, who you should start on your team. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, basically just aggregates, gets an average of their rankings, which is a little different than what you're doing. Um, but I always speak to wisdom of the crowds here on the ride in NFL DFS podcast. In fact, I believe I have referenced before James uh, Surowiecki's uh, book, Wisdom of the Crowds. And it's a book that I've read. And I really do believe that, you know, the aggregation of information is much uh, more accurate than any one person's over time. So uh, the next thing that I want to talk about is the predictive nature of, of um, expected draft position. And if you could just speak to what that is because uh, when people load up grinding the they're going to see that expected draft position uh, acronym. And if you could just speak to the predictive power first uh, by position, like, is there, a, and I'll, I, I'm guessing that, and this is the only thing I'm going to say before I hand it over to you, I'm guessing that QB is probably not uh, very predictive or maybe a little bit all over the place, just because a lot of teams move around and, and come up for quarterback and, and things like that. But um, if you could just speak to the predictive nature of, of the EDP on, on grinding the mocks. Yeah. So EDP, because, you know, a lot of times you hear in sports analytics, people call, you know, for example, in, in hockey and soccer expected goals, they call it XG. And so I was like, Oh, we well, should I call it XDP. That didn't sound very good. And I was like, Oh, well, like it's kind of like average draft position, but, you know, it's a little bit more, it's not quite just a simple average. Um, there's a little bit more that goes into it. Um, so, so I call it expected draft position and a shorthand for EDP. Um, and so what's the predictive power of EDP? It's a good question. So this is the second, this is the second full draft season that I've been doing this for. So I started kind of doing a proof of concept of this stuff in the 2018 NFL draft. Um, but I really kind of, once I saw some of the like interesting kind of insights and in the charts uh, that I could make, I decided to kind of go kind of full in in the 2019 draft. Um, and so there's really not a whole lot um, of predictive power that I can say with like a lot of certainty. But when I look at actual draft position and I look at what I have in expected draft position, you know, we, when we look at the variance in an actual draft position, expected draft position explains about 80% of the, the variation in actual draft position, which is pretty good. Um, and so I'm always trying to do better um, but, but that's kind of the, the very basic measures 
of what I call expected draft position explain 80% of, of actual draft position. But you're right to question because on the top level, you know, it might look that it explains a lot, but then we can see a lot of variance in the kinds of uh, slices of data that lie underneath. So you asked about position. So quarterbacks, like you mentioned, tend to be overvalued quite a bit in mock draft data. So over the last two years that I have data on, you know, the, the median like, kind of difference between the actual draft position and expected draft position for quarterbacks is the highest, really, when we adjust for the value of picks. So when we say that, when we say that picks in the first round are higher, are more valuable than picks in the second round, for example. Um, so when we look at that, quarterbacks tend to be the most overvalued. And so a part of it, I think, is that, you know, in the mock draft, um, in the mock draft marketplace, um, people have um, certain ideas and about, you know, what's going on with certain quarterbacks. They might react to certain information differently than others. Quarterback is a very valuable position. They might think that some teams want to take quarterbacks and kind of push them up in value artificially. I kind of haven't really come up with like a good theory of action for why quarterbacks are, are valued so highly much more in mock drafts than they are in actual drafts other than the fact that I think people kind of just want to push quarterbacks on teams or they think this quarterback belongs in, in a certain space in the draft. So, you know, in the 2018 draft, that was a kind of bumper crop of quarterbacks because we had Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, um, you know, and that was a lot. We had five in the first round, including Josh Rosen, who I always seem to forget, um, mostly because he hasn't really played. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, how yeah. could you? <laughs> yeah, my, my fellow Jew, the chosen Rosen. So, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, there were five. And so I think people kind of forgot that that's really a lot of quarterbacks. Um, you know, this year I only expect about four quarterbacks to go in the first round, and that's kind of more of the norm. Five is a lot. And so, you know, in, in that year as well, you had kind of a lot of love for Mason Rudolph, even in the first round. He ended up going in the third round. And so at the same time, you know, I don't want to like overstate it, but for the most part, the same trend that happened in 2018 happened in 2019. And the, the poster boy for that was Drew Locke. So, you know, in the future, when I want to do, I want to kind of do some kind of better adjustments of expected draft position that actually account for kind of the market share of the different rounds. So, you know, if we have mm -hmm. expected draft position, we shouldn't be a slave to a metric, right? We should kind of view it in its context. So, you know, just because we have five quarterbacks in the first round, we're saying theoretically, you know, like last year, um, you know, we had Haskins, we had Kyler Murray, we had Daniel Jones, but were we forcing Drew Locke? And it turns out that in this case, we kind of were. Um, so there's definitely adjustments that I want to make in the future to account for, you know, the, the overvaluation of quarterbacks. But the position that I do best at is one of the positions that matters the most in, one of the most in fantasy football, not as much on the real field. Uh, play, which is running back. I tend to do pretty well with running back uh, of getting those right on average, but in the small sample of the past couple of years. So uh, I feel good about that. Um, quarterback tends to be really overvalued in mock draft marketplace. Um, I haven't done as much investigation into how that looks just because the sample is so small. Um, in the future, you know, my plan is to do a little bit more engagement and, and research into kind of what drives some of those things. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, a once a year event is a, uh, unless you've been at it forever, is a tough, tough sample size to, to hash out. Um, the one thing that I, I, as I hear you speak is something that I feel like is um, becoming more prominent to me is that 
um, these mock drafts that you're aggregating seem to uh, mirror fantasy football drafts a little bit in the fact that some of the positions that are overvalued, such as the quarterback. Um, but then I want to talk about the rounds, right? There's seven rounds in an NFL draft. And um, I feel like in a fantasy draft, you can kind of pinpoint who's going to be taken in the first, second, third round. And then, and then the wheels kind of start to come off the wagon. You know, players start to reach, fantasy players start to reach on their favorite, uh, maybe a player from their favorite team or somebody, a, a quote-unquote sleeper that they, they don't want to get uh, sniped on. And they, um, the, the variance just starts to, to really come into play. Uh, as you get later in the draft. Is that something that you see in the mock draft data? Uh, is it easier to predict the first few rounds, or is it not that way? Yeah, you know, you're you're right on. Um, the, the first round and the third round tend to be the more predictable rounds, and I think that's because there's a good amount of players in the second round who I projected in the second round that end up in the first round and a little bit uh, vice versa for the second and the third round. So, you know, the, the second round and the first round and the third round, the first two nights of the first two days of the NFL draft, those tend to be the days that I do pretty well. After that, in the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, it's kind of all over the place. Um, but uh, I tend to do the seventh round pretty well because, you know, for the most part, you know, guys that are there are there for a reason. Um, and a lot of players that I kind of have in the seventh round are a lot of them you know, potentially go undrafted. There's not a huge difference between seventh round right. and undrafted. Um, but yeah, so I think a lot of the times the second round, you know, there's a lot of value to be had in the second round of the actual draft because, you know, the first round is only 32 picks. So we talked about small sample size before, you know, the 32 picks of the first round, you know, the way I have it, you know, out this year is four quarterbacks, um, five cornerbacks, five edge players, three linebackers, if you include Isaiah Simmons in that, who are off-ball variety, six offensive tackles, two defensive tackles, five wide receivers, one in the center, one safety. And so if we have, like, even a little bit of a swing, and like, let's say that we add another wide receiver in there and we have six, well, that means that another player who you thought might be a first-round player ends up in the second round. So picking in the early second round is very, very beneficial because not only will you be accessing players who are expected to be available at the beginning of the second round, but you're also going to be ending up with players that were potentially first round kind of expected talents. So, you know, the first uh, picks of that second round are very valuable. Um, and so sometimes, you know, last year, for example, the, the Indianapolis Colts, I guess in yeah, the last draft, the Indianapolis Colts made a trade with Washington Redskins uh, for the Washington, Washington move into the first round to select Montez Sweat, the defensive end from Mississippi State, mm -hmm. and they traded a future second. Well, that future second is the 34th overall pick, which is basically a first-round pick. So Indianapolis is a very smart team. Uh, Chris Ballard is a pretty shrewd uh, individual and negotiator. So, um, you know, the, it helps to trade with teams that you expect to not be as good and kind of feast on their poor decision-making, especially when Bruce Allen is no longer around to complain. <laughs> so uh, piggybacking off that, are there any specific teams that seem to be more predictable um, from a mock draft stamp standpoint, if you have that data? Like I, I assume the Seahawks, the way they go off the rails sometimes, they're, uh, the, the predictive power of some of these aggregated mocks don't really nail down the Seahawks, but are there any teams that 
uh, or is there is there some type of metric that you have to say like this this certain team is uh, you know kind of goes with the flow and then this certain team usually it kind of is uh, off the rails a little bit. Yeah. No, so I wrote an article recently uh, that was published in football outsiders um, or kind of go through kind of expected draft position and what grinding the mocks is. And then I define, um, I go into some detail and I define a metric that I call draft surplus value. And basically it's just this residual between actual and expected draft position. And so you can look at it on all those different dimensions, like we discussed, like round by round position by position. And we can look at team by team. And so, you know, I, I encourage people to take a look at the chart because it's really kind of an interesting way of looking at drafting. And, you know, one of the things that I was talking, you know, with, with a friend about this, and I, and I mentioned, and you're right, there are some teams that you think of as heterodox thinkers in the draft. Um, the Seahawks are one of them, the Falcons, the 49ers, the Patriots. Um, the, so, you know, there's teams like that, but there's teams on both sides of the spectrum who do very well in drafting. So on that side, you know, there's those teams that I just mentioned who kind of tend to play, pick players, you know, a bit higher than expectation. So, you know, for example, the Seahawks drafted LJ Collier in the first round and DK Metcalf in the second round. And if you had told me it was vice versa, I would have believed you. So, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, there's teams on the other side, like the Ravens and the Cowboys and the Saints, the Bills and the Titans, who tend to draft players who kind of tend to let the board fall to them and then take really good players. So, and those teams can be successful too. So just like in fantasy football, when you're um, drafting your team, you know, you might end up with a bunch of value picks or you could end up with some picks that are maybe heterodox. Um, and I don't think that necessarily the, the draft surplus value is associated with teams being good or bad. I think it's probably all over the place because to be honest, there's a lot of things that are really fundamental about football that make those teams that I mentioned heterodox on either side good and a lot of them is strong quarterback play so the seahawks have russell wilson you know the falcons have matt ryan jimmy g with the 49ers you know i I could go on like if you have a really strong quarterback situation then i think it's actually not a bad idea to go heterodox in certain situations um, to to value players maybe differently and try to exploit market inefficiencies and i know that in the dfs game that's a lot of how the best players do really well is they kind of stick out heterodox positions that have potentially higher variance. Um, and so teams do that as well, even though it's not always kind of apparent from just looking at the draft from a bird's eye, from a, from a kind of face level view. But if you look, take a bird's eye view like I am, it can look a little different. And so I don't think we should be judging teams for picking players above or below expectation unless it's really obvious. So like, for example, Mike Mayock, the general manager of the, of the Las Vegas Raiders, um, said this week that it's really easy to see when um, general managers reach for players. Well, he needs to look more closely at himself because last year the Oakland Raiders selected Cleland Farrell, Cleland Farrell, the defensive end from Clemson at four. Um, and that was the largest uh, reach in my draft data in terms of a value-based pick perspective um, in, the, in, my three, in my two years of collecting the data. And I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of stayed that way. So... Um, you know, you can, I think you can judge teams on a, when you make a high pick and it kind of looks really odd. Um, but for the most part, you know, their teams can make those selections and, and still do well. I don't think the Raiders necessarily have that luxury, but mm-hmm. the Seahawks do, um, you know, the Falcons some, in some sense do, the Patriots definitely have in the past. Um, so it goes both ways. 
Yeah, I mean, you made some two really good uh, analogies there that I think the listeners can definitely relate to. I mean, in a, in a regular redraft fantasy league, you can make a reach on a player who is supposed to go in the 12th or 13th round in the ninth round, and he can perform like a fifth round player and, and vice versa. So I think that's a, a really a really good point there. And then especially the DFS point, um, some of those teams that kind of let the value fall to them or, you know, kind of take the most obvious picks when they're on the clock, uh, I think would be more of a, of a cash game player, a 50-50 or a double up player. They are just trying to hunt for the most value and they're trying to maximize their their point per dollar score. And then you're right. The guys that win the, the million dollar prizes are the ones that just go off the beaten path a little bit and embrace variance. And when it hits in their, in their favor, they are the ones that cash in. So um, well, funny that you mentioned Mike Mayock, because um, I think that, and it, it's based on a story that I heard uh, Daniel Jeremiah mentioning i don't know where i heard it or read it um but it just it it just popped up into my mind when you mentioned mayock and i think that this aggregation of of mock draft data is something that a lot of teams should be embracing because when they quote unquote grind the tape um let's say that's the opposite of grinding the mock they uh, a lot of times they're only watching three or four games and and, uh, you know their scouts might only watch three or four games of a player and daniel jeremiah was telling a story where he and Mayock were uh, out to eat and they had completely different opinions on a player. And uh, Mike, Mike, Mike Mayock said something to the effect that, well, I hope you didn't watch him in November of, of his senior year because he had a hamstring that the entire month. And that just happened to be the only games that Daniel Jeremiah watched. So, um, you know, he was down on a player because he was probably playing at about 50% because he only watched four games of tape on him. And I think, um, you know, this, uh, what you're doing here, aggregating all this data, uh, especially uh, by the more accurate experts, is is a way to kind of weed out those inconsistencies in, in quote unquote, grinding the tape. So let's move on to um, specific players, because really, uh, I mean, I encourage everyone listening to go to grindthemocks.com and, you know, play around with all of the tools it is a shiny app that you get redirected to, which is pretty cool. You can see all the graphs. You could play with um, all of the different players and metrics that uh, Benjamin has put into this uh, website. Uh, but the, the purpose really of this podcast and all the podcasts over the next two weeks is going to be to try and spot some inefficiencies in betting markets with some players. And the first player I want to talk about is DeAndre Swift. And I know you mentioned that running back is one of the positions that you have been the most accurate. And uh, what does the mock draft data kind of say about DeAndre Swift and maybe his range of outcomes for this year's draft? Yeah, so, you know, Swift has kind of been the number one or two running back throughout this entire process. Um, His main threat was Travis Etienne for the running back from Clemson who went back to school specifically because he said he wants to be a first-round running back. Um, so I don't know if Swift will, will actually get that treatment. I have him as a kind of late first-round, um, you know, early second-round player with like more of a likelihood that he ends up on the second-round side than the first-round side, uh, just because um, that's kind of how I, my data views it. When you look at the kind of the, the different the trend that he's going as well, he's kind of flattening out a little bit. I don't know if you'll see like a late surge to him over the next week, but uh, I mean, I'll obviously continue to track that. So, you know, as of taping, 
I believe that he's kind of a borderline first round, but I would, I would be more likely to guess that he would be early second round um, for him. Yeah. So right now his, his prop is exactly (laughs) 32.5. So they're daring you to, um, to bet one round or the other. Um, I think that's a prop that I would probably uh, sway to wherever uh, the juice takes me. Um, I didn't, I didn't write it down, but I don't think that, I think he is more likely to be according to the books taken in the first round. So if there's a little bit of plus EV there on the 32.5, I wouldn't mind putting a little bit on DeAndre Swift. The the main uh, bet that I want to talk to you about in this round. And since I, since you think that you, since you're leaning DeAndre Swift in the second round, you're probably not going to like this, Um, but the odds did look, somewhat decent um for two running backs to go in the first round i'm guessing that uh, someone would have to be enamored with uh jonathan taylor's combine numbers because it looks like he'll be the second running back off the board most likely um is there any way that you can see uh, the variance uh rearing its ugly head and both deandre swift and jonathan taylor you know uh, i don't see it um i think the 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 way that I, the the draft has kind of run the past few years, like the past years I've been looking at it, for example. Um, so you know, in the 2018 draft, we had kind of a run on some late round, first round running backs that I thought were early second round guys. So I think that there's potential if there were some guys, if Taylor had a higher expected draft position that was more like early, early second round than mid second round, because I have him going in the kind of early 40s of the, which is in the second round, right? So I just I'm not sure if I see as much mm-hmm. for his range to be. I, I mean, I think it could happen. You know, I don't I don't want to rule it out, but I think that if I had to if I had to put money down myself, which I don't do uh, that much, um, but I would think that it I would never I wouldn't take that bet necessarily. Um, but yeah, so to me, Swift. Right. If there were some other backs that were kind of like really close, then I'd think more about it. But you know, Dobbins and Taylor. Um, and then oh, hi, there's probably going to be, I'd take two in the second round, but uh, definitely not two in the first. Right. So basically the odds that they're giving you on that is plus three, plus 325, which is basically like 3.25 to one, which if we calculate that percentage, it comes out to about, you know, 23 and a half percent. So basically the way I would have to look at that is, do I think it is more than 23% likely that two running backs will be taken in the first round. And judging by the way you're talking and the way you are analyzing those mocks, it probably isn't going to happen, even though that is a pretty uh, pretty good odds. I think that's something that you probably don't even want to uh, take a flyer on. The position that I've been enamored with this year is the offensive tackles. So er- real early on, I bet uh, Tristan Wirfs to be drafted within the first eight picks. And then I added to that with Jedrick Wills to be drafted within the first 10 picks. His line has since moved from uh, 10.5 to 8.5. So that's a good swing in my favor. Uh, But uh, the tackles that are going to be taken in the first round. So we have Tristan Wirfs, um, probably uh, he's most likely mostly projected to be the first tackle off the board. But I've seen Makai Becton up there, um, his uh, you know, his senior season and off season, I feel like has been a roller coaster of uh, ups and downs. You kind of didn't hear about him. He was a second round tackle. Now he's in a lot of people's mocks as um, a top 10 pick. 
And then Jedrick Wills out of Alabama and also Andrew Thomas uh, seems to be uh, projected highly in some mocks as well. And then there's some uh, tackles in the back end like Josh Jones and Austin Jackson uh, and a few others. Can you just speak to how you see or how the mocks predict the tackle? Uh, yeah, so it's been an interesting position to follow. You know, definitely, you know, if you had told me that Andrew Thomas had the kind of offseason that he had in this draft, run up to the draft, um, at the end of the regular season, I would have thought he'd be the first tackle because he hasn't done anything wrong, really. Um, I think that the, the discovery of, mm-hmm. of Wills that happened kind of in the, in the, at the end of the season, people started to kind of come around to him a lot more. And then obviously, the, as you described it, you know, Becton had a really interesting process overall. Um, so you know, the way that the mock drafts kind of see the tackle position shaking out is Thomas, Worfs, Wills, Becton. Um, so, you know, it's been interesting to follow, and I, I think they should all be gone in the first 15 picks. Um, and, and I think that there's some people who believe that there'll be a run on the tackle position, and so Josh Jones is the next guy up. After that, you know, you have Austin Jackson from USC and Ezra Cleveland from, from Boise State, um, and those are the, the kind of six guys that I look at um, in terms of the, the early second round, late first. Like I was mentioning, they might have the, the range – that could put them somewhere in the later first round that the running backs position doesn't really have. They don't have that juice. Like you were saying. Um, so, yeah. so no, um, so for, I find it funny that you say that. It, so you would, if you had to guess, you would say that Andrew Thomas is going to be. So the first I thought he would be early board, on, is that right? um, but I, he definitely, he comes in as the fourth tackle. Oh, okay. um, I, I think, you know, to be honest, just on fundamentals, he kind of had a, a kind of, offseason that was similar to Jonah Williams from Alabama, who was drafted number 11 by the Bengals last year, and that he came into the season offseason really hot, and he really didn't do anything wrong. He did everything that he mm-hmm. was supposed to do. Uh, I think that Thomas maybe had a better combine and fundamentally is a better athlete potentially at the tackle position than Jonah Williams. The only difference between this year and last year is that the tackles around him are, are a lot stronger. So I think at the top end, the, this tackle class is viewed as pretty elite. Um, and in terms of depth, it doesn't really have as much depth as some of the attack classes that have come uh, previously. Yeah, so I, uh, for the listeners, um, if you have WERPs under 8.5, as we've mentioned on previous podcasts, and Will's under 10.5, I think we're still in a pretty good spot. Um, I think the Giants have a good chance to, to pull the trigger on a tackle at four. Um, and then obviously five and six is out of the question. The, the Dolphins and the Chargers probably going quarterback there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then I think the Panthers, Cardinals, and Jaguars all have um, decent needs there. So I think I could see. And then if the Browns, uh, I hear a lot about the Browns wanting to trade out of 10, um, but they could potentially go after a tackle as well. So there's four, four landing spots there for the two that we have. So hopefully we're in a good spot there. Um, and the lines are pretty much staying pat. If you want to um, go out and bet those, those tackles Werps and wills uh, are the two that I'm on right now at their current, uh, their current lines. So now the wide receivers, and this is one I'm not, I'm not too hyped on actually pinpointing exactly where players will land. However, when I stumbled upon um, Henry Ruggs draft portfolio last night on grinding the mocks, I saw that overwhelmingly like uh, 
far and away the the biggest discrepancy in um, a line and where mock drafters are are betting on a player landing. Henry Ruggs to Denver. And then at William Hill, he is currently six to one, meaning if you bet a hundred dollars, you win six hundred. Uh, that is his line to land uh, in in Denver. Um, so have your mock drafters or has the data from grinding the mocks been at all predictive and exact? So yeah, so when I talk spots? about draft surplus value, that's what I'm talking about. Um, though I agree with you. You know, I'm, I'm also more interested in kind of, well, that's just me personally because I'm not betting, but, <laughs> um, but I'm more interested as well in kind of right. the range of expected <laughs> outcomes. And, you know, when I talk about kind of an analytical approach to the draft, that's a lot of what I think about uh, because we often view the draft as a zero-sum game because we only get to see the draft once. Like you talked about it, it's a once-a-year thing. Um, but in reality, the draft can go any number of mm-hmm. ways. So Henry Ruggs is really interesting. I, I haven't looked as closely at his, at his chart, but um, – you know, I think that the, the, the big thing for him in terms of what I think has maybe pushed him up a little bit from the 15 to more around 13 is who's selecting at 13 now, um, which is San Francisco, mm-hmm. the 49ers. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the top three receivers, Judy, Ruggs, and Lamb, are just so close together. You know, you were talking about being excited to see the, how the offensive tackle shape, shake out. I'm actually way more excited to see how the wide receivers shake out. Because, to be honest, it's so close. Like, I think basically, you know, Judy, uh, Jerry Judy from Alabama and C.D. Lamb from Oklahoma are pretty much tied right now in my data. Um, so, you know, the 11-12 spot and then the 13 spot, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see those three guys just go boom, 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 um, which I think would be really fun. Um, you know, more wide receivers, the better. I, I'm really excited for the, the offensive explosion in football to kind of, come from college to the, to the pros. So um, that's me being kind of excited about that. But those three guys, you know, I'm very intrigued to see how that shakes out. Yeah, I think the only way that uh, Ruggs makes it to Denver is if they come up uh, or if the Niners opt to go cornerbacks. I feel like that's a need for them as well. Um, but leading right into – your your uh, excitement for the wide receiver position it is a massively deep class this year and one of the the prop bets that I found interesting was uh, the amount of wide receivers to be taken in the in the first round and it's right at your number 5.5 you said that you had Mm -hmm. five wide receivers expected to go in the first round, give or take. And that's the give or take is the big question there. So right now they're giving you plus 185 uh, on taking the under. Because I think, um, you know, uh, like you said, with, with quarterbacks being overvalued, I feel like a lot of times they want um, people, when they're betting, want to bet that more wide receivers will be taken. Um, exciting position, you know, their favorite players. So sometimes that drives the betting line a little bit. And obviously, the three that you mentioned, Judy, Ruggs, and Lamb, will be off the board in the first round. But then we have uh, guys like Denzel Mims, Justin Jefferson, Brandon Ayuk, T. Higgins, LaVisca Chenault, Jalen Rager. Later on down the line, a guy that I love, Chase Claypool, probably end up playing like an Evan Ingram tight end slot type role. Um, 
so what does the data say about not what does the the grounding the mock data say about um the expected number of wide receivers yeah the, the books the are playing mind games with people I don't, I don't know what the, they're really they're, they're very smart for a reason so yeah so <laughs> my expected if you just look at expected draft position by rank i have five but like i said we shouldn't be a slave to the number we should kind of put it in context um and so you know, to me, when I look at guys that are solid, in addition to the three you're talking about, I think Denzel Mims is a solid first rounder. And I think Justin Jefferson is a solid first mm-hmm. rounder. I do have some pause about Justin Jefferson. There's always a player that I think is a first round lock who f- drops out. Sometimes it's for medical reasons, um, like Juwan Taylor last year. And that's how, yeah, and that's how Titus Howard ended up oh, being yeah, the first round Florida. pick. So, you know, that's, there's always some surprise um, guys that I think are pretty solid in their stock. You know, the thing about Jefferson that separates him from, you know, Lamb and separates him from Judy and, and Ruggs is that he's primarily, and by, by I mean primarily, I think he had like some upward of 95% of his snaps in the slot. And so to me, it's unclear, you know, when we look at the, the right. NFL free agent marketplace, the, it's not very kind to slot receivers. Um, it's only kind to slot receivers who can also play outside. And that's what Ruggs proved he could do at Alabama. It's what he's going to be expected to do in the pros. Um, but yeah, so if I don't think Jefferson is a first round pick, I do think Brandon Ayuk is. Um, so, you know, if it's going to be six, I think it would be okay. including, you know, Ayuk and Jefferson and the guys that I think are kind of falling that are don't that are of those that you mentioned, you know, Higgins and Chenault are, are on the way down. So I think that their likelihood, you know, Higgins is more of a early second. I also think that Ayuk, is but I think his range is definitely in the first. Um, but yeah, Higgins and Chenault and, and Jalen Raker from Texas Christian, I project them all to be in the second round. So I, the reason that the this line jumped out at me is because of you know the plus money that they're giving you. Uh, a lot of times you will take a bet that you are not always a hundred percent sold on. Um, because of the odds that you're that you're being given and i think it's probably 50 50 at this point that it'll either be uh you know over or under 5.5 wide receivers i don't think that it's crazy to say that it'll only be five and and if you know Ayuk or you know jalen rager sneak into the first round there and make it six i won't be incredibly surprised at that either but the fact that you're almost getting two to one on your money my lean would be to go under there and then hope that you know teams see how deep the wide receiver class is and that potentially pushes um teams to maybe even trade back or to wait on a second round second round wide receiver like chenault or higgins um later on in the draft uh the next position tight end and basically the reason that we really aren't touching on guys like okuda uh, or simmons or uh, you know, Kavion Chase on Patrick Queen is because a lot of times those prop bets aren't really out there in the market too much or, uh, you know, there just really aren't good odds on them because defensive players aren't sexy and that's not really who betters know from watching college football, et cetera. So we're kind of staying with uh, the main offensive positions because they're just kind of the ones that you always can find a line on at most books. So this one's really interesting. I mean, tight end is weaker than ever in 2020. Um, the first line that I want to talk to you about is Cole Komet at 44.5. Uh, I, I don't really have a leaning either way, 
from me. Like, I don't know where you, grounding the mock says that he's going to land. Uh, is it, is the range somewhere in that 44.5 range or is it much, I would guess it has to be much higher than that. If um, you know, lower really towards the, towards round three, if anything, but uh, where do they have, the mocks where the have, mock have Cole Komet as the first tight end, uh, but it's probably not going to happen at least in the data that I have from it's probably mid to late second round. He's my 56th ranked player in terms of expected draft position. Yeah. 56th. Is that what you said? Okay. So there's some pretty good value there on the over. Uh, and that's a, a bet that Anthony Amico kind of alluded to on last week's podcast. He really liked the over on Cole Komet, uh, 44.5 draft position and i think i'm going to actually pull the trigger on that as soon as this podcast wraps up because uh if grinding the mocks has the range um you know towards the 56th uh expected draft position then i think cole Komet uh, over 44.5 is a definite uh possibility there for you to get some uh a little bit of minus money there i think it's at minus 110 at william hill uh so adam troutman out of dateman and Al O, uh, is there any possible uh, way that Cole Komet is not the first tight end off the board? Because there is some serious money to be made if one can make a case for Troutman or Ukeng uh coming off the board. Yeah, uh, I mean, first, I the tight end position I'm usually I usually feel pretty good about in terms of predicting it. I, they're kind of up there along with running backs in terms of positions that I usually feel pretty good about. The only problem is there's not as many of them, so it's like a small sample issue once again. But I, I viewed Troutman in the third mm-hmm. and Albert O in like the, like the later third round, almost fourth. Um, uh, I, you don't really hear a lot about them in the first round. Like people were talking about that at first, but I think that's kind of a, a fantasy. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that these this you're right. This class mm-hmm. and also the interior offensive line class are pretty weak all around. Um, so. But the, the position isn't as important enough that teams are going to invest you know, premium picks because the athletes really aren't there like they were last year with Hawkinson and Fant. Um, so uh, I, I, there's a pretty big distance between the Komet and the rest of them. Um, I think that you know, the rest of them are, are more likely to go in the third and fourth round where I project you know the Hunters, Hunter Bryant and Harrison – or sorry, the Bryants. <laughs> Harrison Bryant and Hunter, mm-hmm. Hunter Bryant in the third and fourth Bryant, round. Yeah. Bryson Hopkins as well. Um, but yeah, it's going to happen more in the third and the fourth round. Um, that's how I see it right now. The, the tight ends, the tight ends are kind of a, a weird position in this class. Yeah, and that's um, for sure. Yeah. And that's the, the, the betting lines uh, indicate that it's pretty heavily favored towards, towards Cole Komet coming off the board first. I just wanted to see if, you know, maybe their range of outcomes overlap there a little bit and, uh, Potentially, we could we could make some money there. Um, so quarterback is the last position that I want to talk about. And there are a few players. There's one player that I think I'm going to hammer after this. And I've already looked up his expected draft position. And I'm going to lead with him, uh, despite the fact that uh, I'm going out of order here a little bit. Jake Fromm, currently on William Hill, his over-under um, is the 60.5 pick, which is, you know, the third last pick in the second round, basically. Uh, what does the, the mock, the draft, mock data draft data say about chart. So I don't have a draft stock chart for him, and it's just continuously going downward. So 
you know, in the beginning of the process, you know, right. he's coming off a pretty good year. Um, and he was viewed as a first round quarterback in the beginning of the process, but like very beginning, like at the beginning of the season. And then the season came and, you know, I don't think he had as, as great of a season as he would have hoped. The Georgia offense was pretty kind of bland. Um, it's kind of fun to imagine if, you know, the Joe Brady had ended up with the, the Bulldogs instead of with the Tigers, what that would have looked like, um, because I think he would, he would have benefited quite a bit. But yeah, grinding the mocks, you know, late third, early fourth, it's like I have him between like 95 and 115. That's kind of the range I have on him. And so, you know, it's way past second round. Um, yeah. Yeah, ton of value there on Jake Fromm, ton of value there. And I think, um, you know, one of the cool things is you can highlight all the data points on your scatter plot. And the first two that I highlighted, one was from Kyle Krabs, a guy that I respect. And then another guy that I highlighted was Mike Renner. And I respect his opinion a lot as well. And both of those mock drafts, which were from very recently. Um, and I always like to, uh, you know, I assume the data as we get closer to the draft is a little bit more accurate. And that goes into the weight of the EDP. Um, Kyle Crabb and Mike Renner both have, uh, Jake Fromm in the very low 90s uh, in their most recent mock drafts. And I mean, if you can scoop him right now at 60.5, the over there, there is a ton of leeway there. Uh, even if he, even if someone comes up into the third round or, or pulls the trigger in the third round, you are winning that bet. How about, uh, and I saw Mike Leone tweet this, which is why I added him in here. Uh, Jalen Hurts yeah, so at 62.5. I have his kind of the low range of him as 77. But he's trending up a little bit right now. I think people, during the season, he had a really, really strong run. And then he kind of faced some tougher opponents. And people kind of saw that, you know, he was benefiting a lot from the Lincoln-Riley scheme. Um, but he doesn't have the same kind of deep accuracy numbers as Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, who you know, really could sling the ball. Um, so, you know, I think Hertz is kind of intriguing. Um, you know, I, I still think that he'll be in the third round, potentially. But, you know, I, I could be swung to believe that it'll be closer to the, the beginning of the third round. But I don't know if I would – I don't know if he'll be in the second round. The second round quarterback that I have kind of borderline right now is Jacob Eason from Washington, who's kind of late second, early third. Um, okay. And so if you want to swap Eason and Hertz, you know, that's not out of the realm of possibility in my mind for it to happen. I could see it happening. Um, but, you know, I would expect that he would be in the third round somewhere. Uh, maybe people are infatuated with this kind of Taysom Hill gadget player deal. Um, it's unclear to me that that teams would right. necessarily value that in the second round. And the last one I want to talk about is obviously Jordan Love out of Utah State. Um, hearing that a lot of guys, I, I personally right now have a bet that he will be drafted over 19.5. So somewhere after pick 20. Um and really in the first round, you have to kind of look at who needs QB. And there really isn't a ton of teams before 19 that would pull the trigger on a quarterback. So really, I think the only thing that you would have to worry about is a team trading up if they really have a high grade on Jordan Love um, or potentially, you know, something crazy like a Jake Locker where, you know, the Chargers take Jordan Love instead of Tua or instead of Justin Herbert. So, but yeah, Jordan Love, you know, Love, I think, landing? is the strong favorite to be this fourth quarterback, mostly because I think that there's this huge gap between the first-round quarterbacks and the rest of them. Um, but, 
Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, I kind of view him in sort of the the tradition of these past couple of draft classes that I've been monitoring really closely of a quarterback who doesn't have a great statistical profile but has really good tape, and so there's a lot of kind of stock pent up in his potential. Um, so my range for Jordan Love is 17 to 25. And so I think that you're right that it's hard to see a team just drafting him straight up potentially in that space. And I think a trade for him is pretty likely. I think it's about, I would, I would assume that, um, that two of will probably get selected via trade and it wouldn't surprise me if Jordan Love was selected via trade as well. So yeah, I have him, you know, between 17 and 25. I think that if you were just going to look at his average, like where I expect him to go, it's like basically either the Patriots or the Saints there are strong landing places for him in mock drafts. But, uh, but yeah, he could go between 17 and 25. So, you know, 19 is kind of like almost right in the middle a little bit. So he's, it's a, it's a tough bet. It's people don't really know what to think. Um, A lot of teams are doing their research on him right now. um, And I think there's a lot of interest in him because it's one of those unknowns. Like where could he go? Yeah, and we mentioned how some teams are, uh, as you put it, heterodox, meaning they don't kind of they don't go with the flow, and uh, it'll probably be one of those teams, uh, if any, that make a move up into the teens for him, um, if if that is the case. Uh, let's hope not for for my sake, though. So the last thing is, I want you to predict where a few players are are going to land, and um, you know, popular players, ones that we've already you know mentioned their names on this podcast. Um, but if you had to guess, this is just, you know, an exercise in futility. doesn't really mean much. Won't take anything away from it. Um, but there's five players. First one is uh, the someone that you just mentioned, Tua Tagovailoa. Where so, yeah, do you Tua think he lands if you had to take So, yeah, Tua is my fourth player by EDP. Um, and so his range is between, like, five and seven. So, you know, it could be, you know, any one of those those teams that, that kind of take a chance on him if there's not a trade. Um, but, you know, I think that – the Dolphins have such a, a huge amount of draft capital. And it's just, to me, I'm just, I think that there's been so much misinformation being pumped out that they're considering Justin Herbert. I don't know if it makes that much sense to me. Um, I view Tua Tungavailoa as kind of like the Joel Embiid of this draft. Um, you talked about variance. Um, I don't often agree with Dan Orlovsky, but he said that, you know, the other day, I think that if someone took you know, Justin Herbert over Tua, they would basically be kind of choosing kind of above average quarterback play when they could have, you know, elite quarterback play. So I view him as kind of the Joel Embiid of this draft. Um, You know, Joel Embiid, if he was not hurt, would have been the first pick in the draft. But because of that, there was concerns and you can get value when, when you take a chance like the 76ers did on a, a great player like Embiid. And I know I'm crossing sports, but, uh, that's how I view Tua. I think that he'll be picked before Herbert. That's kind of what the mock drafts are saying. And I've just been that way for so long. I just really, I, I don't know if I see it um, happening. You know, if you simulated the draft 10,000 times, you know, you'll get, if you'll get certain things, like I think for the most part, the average outcome is that Tua gets selected between five and seven. Herbert gets selected between seven and 10. So I, I'm, I'm with the crowds. And so to me, it's Tua before Herbert. I think there's a lot of noise. And ultimately, I think Miami will, will, will get Tua in their building because they have a, a long-term strategy and a long-term plan for success. Uh, 
draft simulations running off your mock data is the next <laughs> yeah, project for you to work on, I think. <laughs> uh, how about uh, Justin Herbert? So I, you, you already touched on him um, going in the 7 to 10 range. Do you have a specific team? Do you think that the Chargers, you know, settle for him if Tua is gone or if Miami moves up? Or do you think, you know, I mean, if he doesn't go to the Chargers, we could potentially see a Brady Quinn-esque slide for Herbert uh, because I really don't know who who's going to want him. I mean, maybe someone comes up for Yeah, him. I mean, I think the Chargers um, are the about logical a one. Landing um, spot? You know, the Jaguars are right there at seven. And to be honest, you know, they really lack a, a quarterback that's a franchise quarterback. Um, and so I'm an advocate of taking a chance on Justin Herbert. He's not a bad quarterback by any means. Um, you know, I think he, he compares favorably with quarterbacks who can help teams win when you, when you build around them. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people think the Jaguars are going to go defense or double down on defense. And with a couple of the picks, I think their prime team, I, I, that could be really interesting to see them take a quarterback, right. you know, but if I had to pick a team for, for Herbert, I think the Chargers seem like the team, um, you know, they have some players, they have, they've picked high, you know, they've had the, the Bosa kid. But, uh, you know, they also have Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, Hunter Henry, uh, Austin Eckler. Um, you know, they, they've made trades to mm-hmm. bolster the offensive line. And so to me, it just seems like the Chargers, Chargers and Dolphins seems like prime spots for Tua and Herbert. But I think the Jaguars makes some sense. But that's just me personally. That's not really the data saying anything. Yeah, I mean, really, if if you're – if you're a betting man, those are the ones that the odds are favoring at this point. Um, so the last three that I want to talk about are Judy Ruggs and Lamb. We kind of touched on uh, Mims, Jefferson, Ayuk, Higgins, that tier. When are they going to go? Uh, but how about the three studs of the class? Uh, I'm where super do you excited see to see Judy what happens Ruggs with them. You know, I said Lamb it before. Landing. But, you know, Judy to the Jets, Lamb to the Raiders, Ruggs to the 49ers or the Broncos. Seems like the way to go here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's unclear, but you know, I, I think that, you know, those three guys, it's going to be, I'm really interested. I would be, it would be so much fun. Uh, my data would be a little bit wrong. It'd be so much fun to see, you know, one of those receivers go in like the top 10 somewhere via trade or something else. I think it would, you know, obviously that's, that makes it fun and shakes up right. the draft and that's what makes the draft fun for me. But yeah, right now, you know, Judy and Lamb are, are tied. It's just so close. Um, but yeah, rugs, they're, they're all kind of in that same mix. They could, I said before, they could go back to back to back and I wouldn't be surprised. Well, Ben, this was one of my favorite podcasts that I have ever done just because I am data driven uh, like yourself. I love to see how all the numbers shake out and how that fits into, uh, you know, how you analyze where players are going to go, their expected draft position, and just to contextualize all of that into kind of helping our listeners bet some NFL draft props and scratch that uh, gambling itch. Thank you so much for joining the ride in NFL DFS podcast. It was my pleasure. Uh, You can follow Ben at B E N J underscore Robinson on Twitter, and you can absolutely visit his website, grindingthemocks.com and play around with all the tools there uh, to make your own predictions. 